they can take millions of legal money from me. Money that I acquired legally from representing Mike Tyson, from representing the game, from representing Wyclef, from doing movies. For 20 years I've been in the, in the music business. For 20 years I've made legal money. For y'all to come and take my property, to take my money, to take everything that I've worked for for 20 years to let these guys come up to there with invisible drugs and to say that I gave them hundreds of kilos when I was traveling the world doing business with corporate people, with people of all shapes and forms and languages, with lawyers, for y'all to come and say all everything that I've done was illegal because these guys said that I gave them hundreds of kilos is ridiculous and I am in shock that the justice system even works that way. I've been investigating the case of James Rosemond for six years through all his federal criminal trials and in doing a reconciliation of this story, I keep going back to two major points that need explaining and examination. The first is the idea that Jimmy has a harsher sentence than El Chapo. Just put that into context. El Chapo led an organization that imported billions of dollars worth of drugs. Now, Jimmy is alleged by the government to have ran an organization with five guys who dabbled in the drug game. El Chapo laundered billions of dollars through American banks, while the government at trial never proved or showed evidence that Jimmy laundered any money was the exact opposite. So just think about the dichotomy of the federal criminal justice system and the levers of power that's allowed for this to transpire. The second part that I need to reconcile is the story behind Jimmy's pardon by President Donald Trump and his administration. For that part of the story, I'm going to use a Washington Post article, an exclusive audio I recorded with Jimmy around his experience and what exactly happened from his perspective. The story of the pardon has taken on more importance as it has floated through the Court of Appeals and the Justice Department has responded to Jimmy's lawyers. It is a bizarre epilogue to Jimmy's story as he remains behind bars currently. Here is the exclusive audio from James Rosemont. Testing one, two, one, two. Well, you asked me about the um, the Trump situation. I think the Trump thing was a situation that uh, we all got our hopes up high for. I mean, when you when you have your attorney that calls you and t- uh, tells you when I call that um, uh, you'll be released on a certain day, um, especially having the amount of time that I have, you believe it. And so uh, the first thing I asked when I was told uh, that I had clemency, I was like, you talk to the president or you talk to one of the White House counsel? Um, I was told that they talked directly to the president. The president said he was letting me go. So I was, at that point, I dropped my guards because everything before that, I wasn't really 
thinking that I had anything coming to me, right? I didn't know um, there was always a, a 50-50 chance that he would give it to me. So when I was told that they actually talked to the president, the president said that I was coming home, yeah, I became ecstatic. I became emotional. Uh, I remember um, pretty much getting to my knees and starting to weep, starting to tear up, um, knowing the journey that it took to get to that that space. That space uh, uh, took an emotional toll. This is not conjecture. In statements by Jimmy's lawyer, in a legal affidavit by football legend Jim Brown, who talked to Trump, support the fact that President Donald Trump pardoned James Rosemont. He communicated that over the phone and in a room with Justice Department lawyers. So why didn't it happen? So after I was told they were giving us 45 minutes a day because of COVID to make your phone call, to do your emails, and to, uh, to get your stuff together, um, a shower and everything else. So I remember going into my cell and um, tearing up and telling my celly that I had clemency, that I just talked to my people. I was going home that Tuesday, that was like a Friday, that I made the phone call and they said I was going home the Tuesday. Uh, I started packing my things, I started putting the pictures together, getting rid of the things that I would give away. You know, I was, um, I gave my, my uh, unfortunately, I gave the guy who was in the cell with me, I gave him a bunch of things. Um, that I knew he wanted and needed. Um, and then I started putting bags together for other guys um, that wasn't in my cell with me, uh, things that I wanted to leave for them. Um, I made sure I had my address books and um, there was some legal work that I put together. And, uh, and so I was ready to go. I was ready to... to, to um, to get a plan together, you know, um, even though my mind wasn't there yet, but I, I definitely was saying I have to take a moment to think, what am I gonna do when I come home? How am I gonna do it? How will I execute these plans? Who was the first people I was gonna call? Who I was gonna see first? Of course, I wanted to see my children first um, and those who loved me and those who helped me get to this point. It's hard to imagine being in this situation and getting a phone call from legal counsel and understanding the impossible has happened. The hard work by lawyers, by friends, by allies has paid off in a presidential pardon. So, I, when, I, when I laid down that night, I uh, thought about everything that I've been through, all of the trials, all of the t 
testimony, all of the things that got me up to this point, all of the work we did uh, to get the clemency, uh, those things were, you know, on my mind. But knowing me, you know, and look, I'm a very optimistic guy. Knowing the way that the government had portrayed me in trial, Tuesday was too far. Tuesday seemed far away. And that weekend, because they wasn't letting us out to make phone calls during the weekend, they were, um, we were locked in. So I, my next phone call was that Monday. And the first thing I did when I picked up the phone, I said, is it still on for tomorrow? Am I still coming home tomorrow? Because I knew that if something was gonna go wrong, it was gonna go wrong, right? So I, I um, that was the first question I had. And so when uh, Leanne told me that everything was on board, they were about to jump on a plane, they were coming to pick me up. Um, I told them, make sure you get me an iPhone, um, make sure you, uh, you know, I have the necessities. I was gonna head down to, um, to Florida, would be my first destination. Um, told him put the lawyer on the lawyer talked to me told me that I'd have about 10 years probation uh, um, he told me what to expect what time that I would be leaving he told me that um, to be prepared and that um, hopefully he'll see me soon and so you know my 45 minutes was up I went back into my cell and so I knew that tomorrow would be the day that I walk out of the penitentiary. At least that's what I thought. Yeah, I thought I was going home. It didn't, it didn't work out that way. next day I had guys uh, guys calling and they say hey your family is here uh, they're still waiting and they'd come back to my cell and tell me because I was it wasn't my turn to get on the phone yet I saw the noon come. I was waiting for any minute for the counselor or somebody of authority to come to my cell and tell me, hey, um, pack your stuff. Um, you're going home. Um, once I seen noon come and that didn't happen, um, I got on the phone and uh, they said there was a problem and that... Uh, they were trying to figure it out, but they were across the street. And as soon as they let me go, they would be there to pick me up. Uh, 
the other voice on the phone was trying to be as calm and assuring uh, that they could be, right? But I knew. I knew that whoever and whatever that was that really didn't want me to come home was delaying. But one thing that I always had in the back of my mind, but the president called and said he was giving me clemency, not White House counsel, not my lawyer. Uh, it was the president of the United States. So I rest assured on that knowledge. And Tuesday um, came and Tuesday went. And here it is years later, I'm still Here it is, years later, I'm still in the United States Penitentiary, waiting to go home. It's hard to hear that Jimmy was hours away from walking out. And what happened behind the scenes at the Justice Department in Southern and Eastern districts, no one will probably ever know. But I could take a guess that when word got around that Jimmy was going to get a pardon, I can imagine the powerful prosecutors inside the Southern and Eastern districts where Jimmy's cases played out, made phone calls. And those phone calls ended up on the laps of Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. It's obvious that the Justice Department must have gone on the war path and in doing so threatened Trump or discouraged the people around Trump from finalizing the deal. The Washington Post reporter Gus Garcia Roberts states it plainly in his article about the Trump pardon, and I quote, Late last year, it appeared to Rosemond's advocates that they had succeeded. On December 18th, Trump called Jim Brown and his wife Monique, according to legal affidavits signed by the Browns. Let's get this guy home for Christmas, Trump told the staff in his office during that call, the Browns said. By the end of the conversation, the Browns said they had no doubt that Trump meant he was commuting Rosemond's sentence. Rosemond's representatives say that they were told his family should go pick him up the following week and that loved ones traveled to West Virginia to be there when he walked out of prison after a decade inside. But he never emerged, they say. The family returned home devastated and Trump left office two months later. The Browns' affidavits are now central to a novel legal argument being advanced by Rosemont's attorneys that speaks to the mad dash at the end of the Trump administration, when celebrity and influence injected even more uncertainty than usual into the unsettled high-stakes law of presidential clemency. What happened next after Jimmy didn't walk out of the feds in West Virginia is an ongoing legal argument that gets into constitutional law around pardons and what constitutes the communication and nuance when a president grants pardons at the end of his presidency. 
Gus Garcia Roberts states further, and I quote again, in a petition filed in a federal court in West Virginia, Rosemond's attorneys claim that Trump's conversation with Jim and Monique Brown constituted a public communication that he was commuting Rosemond's sentence, which they said is all that is required to make the decision binding and irreversible. Rosemond is serving a sentence that no longer exists, his attorneys write. President Donald Trump has left the White House, but he granted clemency to a couple of celebrities before his term officially ended. Just hours before Joe Biden is set to be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States, Trump pardoned rappers Lil Wayne and Kodak Black. Lil Wayne, a notable Trump supporter, was charged in Florida on November 17th with possession of firearm by a convicted felon and was facing up to 10 years in federal prison, according to NBC News. But the outgoing president, quote, granted a full pardon to Dwayne Michael Carter Jr., also known as Lil Wayne. A statement from the White House read, quote, Mr. Carter has exhibited this generosity through commitment to a variety of charities, including donations to research hospitals and a host of food banks. The White House statement read, Kodak Black was also granted a clemency by President Trump. The television rapper was sentenced to nearly four years in prison after pleading guilty on federal weapon charges, per NBC News. While in federal prison, with the notion of still fighting, Jimmy continues to push on with the new Biden administration as the games of politics continue. Testing one, two, one, two. So we're, we're trying diligently to get to, to the Biden administration to see if they'll honor some of the things that we already dealt with in the uh, Trump administration. Um, well, we, you know, we filed some things into the courts and we're asking the court to uh, honor the, 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 the command or the wishes of, of Trump when he gave me the clemency. However, we're not just waiting on the courts itself. We're waiting on to see if uh, we can reach the Biden administration and maybe they'll do something for me early. There's a couple of options that we have left. Um, surely it's hard to get a, uh, a, a, a resounding favorable uh, decision from the courts when um, you have prosecutors who's always trying to find a way to muddy up a name or scare the courts of taking a chance or doing the right thing. Uh, so we're, we're fighting diligently to try to make some of this stuff happen. And we feel confident that one of the avenues will come through. One of the avenues, of course, is the courts. The other avenue is uh, Biden <clears throat> will give me clemency. And our third option would definitely be uh, if Trump was to run again and win, that he would honor what he had put forth before he left office. Um, so so there's, there's good things happening, you know, and we're remaining hopeful and um, we'll see what happens. 
Another chapter in this story of Jimmy's life and his battles within the justice system have now turned into arguments among legal scholars. Scholars of presidential clemency interviewed by the Post were split on whether Rosemond's legal argument has merit. Mark Osler, a professor of law at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, who has argued for changes to the presidential clemency process, said that the argument presents a fascinating question that hasn't been addressed in modern times. They've got a good point, which is that the Constitution does not set out a method to the granting of clemency. While in other cases, presidents, including Trump, signed pardon warrants, there's no statute or constitutional provision that requires that. Since 2015, Rosemont's team has petitioned through official channels for presidential clemency, supported by advocates as varied as former New Jersey Governor James McGreevy, a former New York State Supreme Court judge, and boxer Mike Tyson. One of Jimmy's lawyers states it the best. Jimmy Rosemont got significantly more time than Al Chapo. Meanwhile, the feds wiretapped his phone for two years and never once did he talk about the drug trade. Representatives of the Eastern District of New York never responded to the Post article, and of course the Southern District declined. This is par for the course with America's war on drugs, and its casualties are endless. Corruption at the top levels of the Mexican and American governments just continue to feed the illicit trade with no end in sight. The many lives that are lost inside federal prisons for the drug trade is astounding. Yet, the Sinaloa cartel remains in business in Mexico, and it's thriving. But lock Jimmy up for nine life sentences. That makes sense. Judy, an accused top operative for the Sinaloa drug cartel that still controls a majority of cocaine and heroin sold in Chicago is known as El Chapo's engineer. Felipe Sarabia got that nickname supposedly because of his knack for engineering covert drug routes by planes, trains, trucks, even submarines. Even as Chicago prosecutors continue tonight to file secret sealed motions in the lingering Chapo case, the engineer is drawing up legal plans to get out of prison. It's surreal to think in the waning days of the Trump administration, with an insurrection boiling up, one of the most famous hip hop executives was told he would walk home free and get a pardon. In the life story of Jimmy Rosemont, this chapter, more so than any other, leaves you baffled and speechless. It begs the question, what's next?